Kia Koto and welcome to this week's episode of Let's Get Sexual. I am Alicia and I'm the host of this sexually explorative podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another Sunday episode of Let's Get Sexual. I'm really excited to be releasing this episode and I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Richie Hardcore. Richie is an educator, a keynote speaker and activist working in violence prevention, masculinities, mental health and wellness. He's also a retired multiple New Zealand Muay Thai champion and now works as a coach and personal trainer. I have followed Richie's journey for a few years now and was particularly drawn to his rhetoric about healthy masculinity and the gender equity and family violence issues that persist throughout Aotearoa. I have attended a few events where Richie has spoken and follow him on Facebook and Instagram where he shares a lot of thought-provoking insights into our society and the role we play in it. Richie is no stranger to controversy and online trolling. He is open about the growth he has gone through as a public figure and that sometimes it is messy. Our conversation is a bit different than others I've had on the podcast so far. However, it is one that I think sheds light on some interesting topics. We discuss Richie's changing relationship with social media and how each of us has a role to play off-screen and in society. Notably, we talk about the validation many of us get for calling out people online and the importance of systemic versus individual change. Richie shares some of his story about growing up in an abusive household and how having a shared experience with others has helped him to create spaces where hurt men who might be on the pathway to violence are able to open up and get help. He speaks to thousands of young men around the country about healthy masculinity, relationships and porn. And he talks about why healthy masculinity is important call-in rhetoric compared to toxic masculinity, which alienates those we want to change. Richie's insights are always thought-provoking, and as an advocate on the ground who talks to people day in and day out, I have a lot of respect for him and the work he does. I am very grateful for Richie taking the energy and time to chat to me so candidly. It was a refreshing conversation, and I hope it gives you as much to ponder on as it did me. Happy listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoy this episode. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Good. I'm really good. I'm all head up about alcohol-related harm in the community. That's what I'm all thinking about a lot today. I used to work in um, public health around alcohol-related harm, right? Yeah. I work with heaps of kids in the gym, and Mm -hmm. they've all got FASD. Not all, but a significant percentage of them. So they're like lifelong behind the eight ball. They're yeah. always going to have a harder existence and be yeah. more likely to kill themselves, more likely to end up in jail and blah, 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 mm-hmm. because their parents are exposed to so much more um, alcohol, advertising, marketing. There's a much yeah. heavier of off-life distance liquor shops selling cheaper liquor mm-hmm. in South Auckland here, which is economically marginalised. And so yesterday, the Waitamata District Health Board issued out like a position paper of a whole bunch of things the government could do. And they're exactly the same as 10 years ago when I used to work in public health. I get frustrated and this ties into work culture. Mm. No one talks about it. Yeah. Like we use hashtags around social justice and we are familiar with what's happening to people in the American context, particularly people of color, mm. but literally thousands of lives particularly Pacifica and Maori lives are damaged here yeah, or ended here or incarcerated here because huge multinational companies make billions and billions of dollars of liquor, but it's not mm. like a trendy conversation and mm. it irritates me. Why do you think that is, that people prefer to look into a space that they can't really control and but like to have commentary on then look into a place that they could potentially have some impact in? 
Can I just be frank with you? Yeah, that's what I want. Okay, because it's trendy and cool. And you mm-hmm. get clout and you get attention yeah. and you get to build a personal brand and you can monetize that brand if you've got a Patreon account. Mm. You get uh, serotonin and dopamine rewards from the likes and the retweets and the shares and the good comments and the go use. If you're talking about trending social issues, the real work of social change and justice happens offline. Yeah. And it's social workers and it's cops and it's nurses and it's grandparents looking after their grandkids because mm. their parents are incarcerated or have got methamphetamine addictions. And that's hard work and that takes time and that's not public and no, very few people see it. Mm. And you'll tire of that unless you have got professional supervision and wraparound care and pathways to support. And you know what? It's not cool. It's cool to use a hashtag. It's cool to share like a viral video of police brutality. It's cool to share a conversation around helping minority communities. And that's fucking great because I've been talking about socially minded issues for about 20 years. And now is the moment in time that I've been most aware of in the last couple of decades that it's like on trend to Mm. buck cultural norms which are oppressive and damaging homophobia sexism sexual harassment sexual violence domestic violence racism endemic problems that historically haven't made the headlines and now they do but few people that i've seen are willing to take the headline and filter it down into day-to-day yeah action It's hard to go to a soup kitchen. It's hard to raise money for a homeless shelter. It's hard to go and get an education in social work or political science. If you want to get into policy, get a sociology Mm -hmm. degree. It's hard to volunteer at an animal rights shelter. That stuff is emotionally difficult and it's time consuming and it doesn't pay. And without sounding self-aggrandizing, I know that because I do that. Mm. I work with kids in the gym every week who tell me about like the terrible stuff, man, like the worst of the worst, like people on the margins of the margins. Yeah. And it's easy to click share. It's easy Mm -hmm. to pile in on someone who is perceived to have done the right thing. And you'll get more validation and attention for doing that than if you do actual social change work offline. Mm-hmm. Nurses, doctors, cops, people who work at the city mission, people who work at LifeWise, people who work at rape prevention education, people who work at any of these organizations, they don't have big social media followings. Yeah. No one knows who they are. People don't stop them in the street and say, what's up? But they're probably yeah. the people called out for not posting something on social media. <laughs> Yo, for you real. Know, when the it's time a whole new thing. It's, that's, yeah. that's interesting. Like I've, I, 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 that's a tough one, man, because... You'll get called out for posting something with the best of intentions around a a social justice issue. Yeah. You'll also get called out for not posting something Mm. with the best of intentions for a social justice issue. So I totally am in the space where I see why people just don't say anything because the the pain of not saying anything is less than the pain of saying something. Yeah, it feels like a lose-lose situation sometimes. And that actually like skips to one of the questions I was going to ask you about your changing relationship 
with social media or if it has even changed. But how do you feel about it in your everyday life? I've been online for a long time, right? And it's gone from like message boards. I used to write on message boards. We've got people in America about like hardcore and punk rock and like music, right? Yeah. And the music that I grew up and continue to love is very politicized. That is like my process into politicization is through music. And then I went on to get a formal education around the sorts of things I cared about after I'd been traveling in Latin America and had children licking my plate and like seen proper third world poverty and experienced it and felt it. And I wanted to understand it and I wanted to try and do something about it. And we used to have these long form conversations that morphed into like MySpace and that's gone on to Facebook and then that's become like Twitter and all these new Mm -hmm. social media platforms And the nature of the conversations have changed a lot around me. And I didn't realize that until I first got like piled on for saying the wrong thing, quote unquote. And I've spent the last five years trying to understand the new nature of discourse around politics and around social issues. And I've found that I've gotten old. It's fucking funny. Mm. It's funny because I still care about all the same stuff. I still care about ending gendered violence. I still care about healthy masculinity. I still Mm. care about LGBTI rights. I still care about ending racism. And those are all fields that I've often put my face to publicly. Like I've been on TV ads around gay marriage, drug decriminalization, ending domestic violence. And you put yourself on a television ad in a small country like New Zealand, a lot of people will have opinions about you. But I've always tried my best to use whatever shrinking public profile I may have as Mm -hmm. I fade into anonymity to Mm -hmm. use my privilege. Mm -hmm. I am a fucking heterosexual, white-passing, middle-class dude. And and the mantra is use your privilege. So I've always tried to do that. Mm -hmm. But how you do that seems to have become increasingly fraught. And so you ask me, how's the nature of how your social media change? Well, it's changed a lot because I just don't say certain things anymore. There's a real chilling effect that comes with, I guess, the new advent of cancer culture and call-out culture. Because you don't even have to have done something. You just have to be labeled problematic yeah, or be perceived to have done something or perceived to have the wrong take on things. And that will lead to like genuine problems for you it'll lead to people losing work and being tarnished and branded as a bad person and it's no longer said a a bad thing there's a metamorphosis through the language Mm. that means that this person's now a bad person and that means that you do get excommunicated from polite society Mm. and I'm cognizant that it's a small percentage of people who have a real amount of power in the social sphere but it is, does become a gateway to like work and invitations to things that might have a tangible outcome on someone's life. Like mm. People lose their jobs over perceived wrong thought, no matter their best intentions. And that worries me because I don't want to lose my job. And because my job is working with really vulnerable people a lot of the time, or I'm really good at reaching boys and men about difficult topics, topics that we need boys and men to be part of, but that they don't often want to get involved in Mm. because they either don't understand them, they don't see the benefit to them or the benefit Mm. to the people around them, or for similar reasons to what I'm talking about now. They're scared of getting it wrong, so they just don't say anything. 
Mm. You know, like why, when you don't get anything out of it and you risk losing a lot, would you put yourself out there? I totally understand that. I've seen that happen. Got people who don't have like the nuances of uh, a political degree or sociology degree or work experience in these spaces or even lived experience in these spaces, but they have an empathy They've tried and say something and then they're like piled on by those who have the privilege of an academic education mm, or those who have the time to think about these things or the time to read widely about these things. If you're a working class person and you're working long hours for minimal pay, you're not going to be up to play with the ins and outs and intricacies of the fraught nature of the conversations that people have online around difficult topics. But you can still identify that they're a problem and you still might want those problems to go away. And you're like, yo, this is a bad thing. I'm going to try my best to say something about it. No, you said it wrong. You said it the wrong way. You're mm. a bad person. You're part of the issue. And we, and obviously we need to listen to marginalized voices but not all marginalized voices, they're not monolith. There is diversity of thought and experience within all minority groups. Absolutely. And which one do we listen to? The ones who think this or the ones who think this? And how are you meant to, how are you meant to tell? And I feel like the way social media conversations around social justice have gone, it's kind of like the new hipsterism. It's kind of, have you heard this band? Oh, they're too popular. They're not cool anymore. And it's, oh, yo, they're mainstream. And it was <laughs> decrease. It's like, the more abstract the concept can get, that's what's cool and that's what we're all meant to be aware of, even if it actually has limited to no tangible physical mm. change in the lives of 90% of the population or the populations that are, are most at risk. Yeah, it's changed a lot. I'm an idealist, but I've become a little cynical and a little mm. jaded because I do see people using online platforms for the wrong reasons. And I've been that for sure. Don't get me wrong, particularly when I was younger, particularly when I was looking for some sort of identity, particularly when I was of poor mental health, I would overuse the internet as an affect numbing tool. Oh, I'm online all the fucking time. I don't have to feel this horrible existential burden of being in the world. And I'm online all the time and like sharing my thoughts and my feelings and knowledge and I'm just going crazy with like hot takes. And while I would like to say it's from a good space, often it is, oh, it feels good to be on the right side of history. It feels mm -hmm. good to be the guy. And then what I've found is as I've gotten older and that actually that's not always the right thing to do. Do, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. you can put your ego into the conversation and then that shifts the nature of the conversation. And also... When you make your activism and your work online and offline an intrinsic part of your identity, then mm. when people attack your work, it feels like they're attacking you. And yeah. That's not good for our well-being. How have you tried to navigate that in yeah. terms of do you still feel like it's an intrinsic part of your identity or are you trying to separate your activism online from actually who you are as a person? It's more just a tool you use. That's a hard one. I have tattoos, man. Like, this is Tommy Smith, the Black Panther, like, mm. saluting the Black Panthers at the 1968 Olympics. I've got, like, punk rock tattoos and I pray another world is possible and the Virgin of Guadalupe. And, yeah. And, and 
I really want the world to be better. Like mm -hmm. I grew up with a chronically depressed alcoholic dad who was abusive and, and violent. And I have mm -hmm. an empathy for people who are still in that space. Like that is very much my lived experience. I grew up in a working class environment with lots of kind of casual street violence around me as I navigated adolescence and young adulthood. And I really care about people who are still in that space because I work with those people, whether it's in the gym as a kickboxing coach or whether it's working with at-risk youth who are in you know agency care, mm. they're still coming to the gym, bust up faces and bruised hands, and they're still getting into fights, they're alcohol-fueled. Like, I still have those conversations all the time, and because of where I come from, that's kind of part of who I am. Mm. So I'm trying to keep that because I think that allows me to best reach audiences. Like mm. I went out to a job site the other day, big company, Hawkins Construction, give a talk about healthy masculinity, but in a way that the audience gets. Mm. I'm like, yo, what's up? Who's seen your dad smash up your house? Mm. Me, it sucks. And all the brothers come up and talk to me afterwards and they're like, man, I'm, I never smashed up my missus, but I do punch holes in the wall. Where do I get help? And yeah. if I couldn't share that experience, I don't necessarily think I'd have that cut through. Mm -hmm. If I'm in there talking about toxic masculinity and the patriarchy, yo, yeah. the bros don't give a fuck. I don't even know, know what that means. That just what, words. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, so I keep that, but I try my best to also, I guess, I don't know. I was getting smashed on the internet once and one of the well-known New Zealanders sent me a message. He said, bro, you show too much of your light. That's why this hurts you so much. Mm. And so I'm trying to figure out how, I guess, I'm just trying to figure it out if I'm honest with you. Yeah. yeah. It's to figure on. out to talk about the things that I think we need to talk about and people don't, but in a way that I guess does keep me a bit safer and a bit more guarded. Yeah. I wonder if there is actually... A, a safe and well-balanced way to do it because you're obviously so passionate about all of the spaces that you put your energy into in your life. And I think that makes it really difficult to actually go, okay, here's a boundary, here's a barrier because you're sharing so much of yourself. And then if you potentially did try to remove some of it or pull it back a bit, would you be making the same kind of impact? Because there are a lot of cruel people and a lot of people who hide behind a screen and love to have their say. <laughs> to feel like they're doing something by doing nothing, really, other than calling people out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. Like, I do appreciate you saying that. Thank you. I really admire uh, how you handle a lot of situations. One is I think I've personally learned a lot by how you handle people who come on with different opinions, not just woke opinions, but people who don't agree because they think you're too woke. And also the fact when people do try to call you out, I think you have a really beautiful way of calling people in, no matter the situation. I understand that might be, that must be very difficult for you. Like in your body, in your mind, it takes its toll, but I really respect uh, the journey that you've probably gone on trying to find a way to talk to people as humans. Oh, thanks, Alicia. It has been a process of um, making a lot of errors publicly. Mm. <laughs> like you could easily find like a whole bunch of screenshots of me being a dickhead, right? That's a thing because yep. I'm a human being. Exactly. And I'm also a very emotional human being who does have wavy mental health. I'm mm. cognizant of that. So when I've been under lots of pressure, I've said the wrong thing or I've done the wrong thing or yeah. 
I've referred to people as bad words. I appreciate you saying that too, because my biggest detractors would somehow make it like an unusual thing to do. Oh, that's such atypical <laughs> behavior when actually it's reasonably human behavior. Pretty but what I've learned is this, is that the best response is no response. If anyone watching this is under heaps of pressure, it's de definitely just the pain of not responding is mm. less than the pain of trying your best to explain yourself to heaps of amorphous, vicious voices who are determined to misunderstand and misrepresent you. You will yeah. never win. I, pr I promise you, because you can give them the literature, you can go back and forth and back and forth and like use questions and tr mm. try your best. Or sometimes you get frustrated and you'll be like, yo, go fuck yourself. And, and that's, then you're done. Then it's proof that you're a bad person or you're an aggressive person or an angry person. And we're all finite. We all have finite amount of um, empathy and we've all got a finite amount of uh, energy. So if you are uh, a, a person trying to navigate the internet, I, I really would encourage you if someone challenges you on something and in your heart that you haven't done something wrong, Mm. or that what you said has got an actual evidence base to it or an actual lived experience base to it. Although I prefer evidence to lived experience because lived experience is subjective and it shouldn't mm -hmm. be a universal truth. Unless um, you're referring it to just as your experience yeah. rather yeah, than exactly. seeing it as the norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my girl, she was telling me about a friend of hers who, was, who refers to like her stories as like case study of one. <laughs> and I'm like, that's funny. <laughs> I but love it's that. also true though, right? <laughs> Speaking for myself or mm. it's my experience, that's a thing. Anyway, point being, unless you have broken the law, then you don't need to put yourself through this big fucking rigmarole of a public accountability speech. It's like the worst thing you can do. I see people putting up these like statements on Instagram with increasing frequency. Mm. And I'm like, all you're doing is giving your detractors more fuel for their fire. Yeah. Because they don't want to have a conversation. People don't want a conversation. People no. want huddy cutty. People mm -hmm. want like an admission of guilt. And you fall on your sword and you move yourself away from the public space. And then, yeah, God, job done. Mm. And I'm in the space where I feel that the most vociferous voices around these sorts of issues seem to actually be ignorant to the fact or unaware of the fact is that they've individualized that we face as a society when, in fact, they're collective problems, mm. they're sociological problems, they're environmental problems. And by destroying an individual's reputation on the internet, you're doing nothing to change the structures which shape individual beliefs, behaviors, mm. and the transmission of bad ideas. Yeah, sure. People are scared to say the wrong thing these days, online at least, but are they, have they actually changed? Are they actually doing anything? Are we actually, are we actually putting policy in place? Are we actually changing access to things or improving access here and limiting access to things here? Like those things don't seem to be happening. I put a thing up on Instagram today around alcohol harm. The Waitamata District Health Board put out a policy paper advocating for increase in price rises, banning of advertising and marketing, or at least greatly restricting it, looking at how we remove like off licenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly the same recommendations that were put forward 10 years ago when I used to work in public health. Do you see woke Twitter talking about that? I mm -hmm. don't. Do you yeah. see Instagram influencers who chase clout by destroying people who made like a stupid joke or throwaway comment 10 years ago talking about that? I don't. But do you know who dies the most at the fucking 
hands of multi-billion dollar alcohol companies like minorities. If we look at who ends up in prison, who kills himself more, who dies from more street violence, some of violence, who suffers from family violence. It's like the people who are historically marginalized and continue to be marginalized and excluded from mainstream conversations, but no one wants to talk about it. Yeah. It's not sexy to say alcohol sucks and destroys the communities. It's not mm-hmm. cool. There's no hashtag around that. Yeah. So I feel like we could utilize social media for good. If you were like, all right, everyone, there's a new liquor shop going up in this community. We need a million people to uh, write an oppositional letter to the liquor licensing authority to oppose it. That's a fucking tangible thing you could do. No one does it because it's too hard and it's not sexy. And that, that sucks. Yeah. You make such valid and good points. Like I think the inability to sacrifice our comfort is definitely something that impacts society's need to just say a lot of things, talk a lot of stuff, but not do a lot. Yeah. It's been sacrificed. And also, I'm very caffeinated and hypo, so I'm sorry I'm talking so much. No, d- please don't apologize for the stuff you're talking about. It's fucking wonderful and fascinating and extremely sad, in all honesty. Well, it um, is sad because yeah. I was in, I've checked this on the gram today, like a young woman who comes through the gym as a group of, I work with about four or five different agencies and I have mm-hmm. small groups of uh, young people who come through. Some are experiencing homelessness, some are experiencing youth justice, etc. Et is this in Muay Thai, like your Muay Thai gym? Muay Thai gym, gym yeah, it's a Muay Thai gym, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend, my good friend, Tony Angelov runs a gym called Liga. She was fully aware that, like she said, there's more liquor shops in South Auckland and it's cheaper than everywhere else. And I said, yeah, 100%. And uh, she said, I wish I could burn them down. And I said, me too. Because her parents, like, just aren't, she doesn't have parents for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. And those are the stories that I hear on the ground all the time. And it frustrates and, like, really vexes me that we don't talk about things like that. We don't talk about the fact that McDonald's and KFC and fast food is literally like killing our most vulnerable people. Like cardiovascular disease is killing people. It's not about beauty standards. I don't like beauty is whatever you think is beautiful. It's in the eye of the beholder and we've had a really anglicized mainstream Mm. version of beauty for a long time. And I'm really glad that it's shifted and changed. Like white standards of beauty, which are really anorexic, Mm. are shifting. That's great. But at the same time, I feel like some parts of that conversation are about saying, yo, obesity is not killing people. And I'm like, yo, there is no data that says that. And it's our economically marginalized people who are fucking dying. And if you wanted to argue it, maybe we're not talking about it because it is our economically marginalized Mm. people who are dying. It's our poor people and our Pacifica people and our Maori people who are dying from alcohol and from obesity and Mm. from preventable illness. And big companies are profiting from it. Maybe that's why we're not talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think coming from a relatively woke sphere, I know that people <laughs> and that, and <laughs> think that when you're calling out things such as obesity, that you're calling out the individual. And mm. actually, I think the take that you're coming from is where the actual power is. It's actually not about the individual. It's about the big conglomerates and organizations which are targeting groups of people specifically. Sure, we all have individual choice. But our choices are affected by things that are convenient. A hundred percent. That's exactly it. And I think we shouldn't be shaming people for what they eat, but Mm. we do need to look at like the role advertising and marketing of huge conglomerates has on individual choices. Mm -hmm. We need to look at minimum wage and Mm. like affordable 
take GST or fruit and vegetables or whatever. I don't know, figure it out. Like there've got to be ways to help people eat better. There's got to be accessibility issues. But it's like the sister at the gym said, young woman, she's, there's heaps of junk food in my neighborhood, but no organic grocer. And I'm like, yo, word, that's true. Just like <laughs> she, she continued. And I said to her, I was like, yo, I want you to say this online, not me. She said, nah, I don't want to. Mm. And I'm like, oh, good. I don't want to. You're a vulnerable person. You don't want to pressure people into. But, and she, there's heaps of like nice wine shops and like Epsom A, but there's no Cody's six packs. And I'm like, fucking A, that's it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. you're dead right. It's a structural problem and, and not an individual problem. And ultimately those choices are political because like you say if we continue to say individuals need to make better choices about what they eat and how much exercise they do things are never going to get better if we change uh, the environments that people have to navigate and people like doug salmon at the otago university Mm. talk about the fact that we have an obesogenic environment an environment that is leads to proliferation of calorie dense food and again it's not about beauty it's about people dying it's about people getting amputations it's about people not having the best quality of life. Mm-hmm. And the people at the forefront of that are people like Dave Letelli at Butterbean Motivation who are working with people who are nearly dying or, or might die if they don't do something to actively change their life. But the environments that we live in and the lack of political action around those things because no one wants to strictly regulate the market means that those people are always going to have an uphill battle. Sucks. Yeah, absolutely. I've been talking about family violence and I guess in a paid professional capacity through a range of different means mm-hmm. for eight or nine years now. Mm. And, and obviously, I, as I said, I have a lived history, lived experience behind that professional work. And fuck, the statistics are getting worse. Mm, <laughs> Do you know? Yeah, and yeah. Part of it's reporting and ending and shame and stigma around asking for help. But like little is changing and Mm -hmm. and i'm starting to think about that i'm starting to think about okay cool great we've got another awareness campaign great there's another hashtag great there's another organization talking about these things that's sick but how do we get more funding for um violent offenders programs you know Mm -hmm. how do we get more funding how do we get more trained uh people helping men who haven't been offenders yet or perpetrators of violence yet but how do we reach them before they do Mm. because when I was a kid getting kicked out of class for being disruptive, no one asked me what was going on at home ever. I wasn't a bad kid, but I was a kid who was disruptive in class. Like I was always getting kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't doing drugs or violence or any of that shit. I was just like a clearly a kid who had some problems and no one ever asked why. And I'm fortunate that I found good role models in sport and academia and things that steered me away from, from being violent and steered me away from alcohol and drugs and recreating what, my epigenetic history would have led me to, but not everyone's that lucky. Many people grow up in environments which enforce and encourage, in fact, the recreation of the behavior that they've witnessed. How do we have early intervention programs for young men who, who do see the worst shit so they don't go on to recreate what their dads did? Because like my friend Phil Pikeo says, walks in the fathers, runs in the sons a lot of the time. How do we help young women who grow up with no dad or um, with a dad who's violent, not seek out partners who recreate the violence that they witness as children. Because mm-hmm. when I'm working with, I work with a group of women from the Grace Foundation every week, amazing woman. Two weeks ago, I said, whose dad's an alcoholic? Put my hand up. All of them put their hands up. Apart from one who said, oh, my dad killed himself. And I said, who's, you know, we got talking, who's had an abusive relationship? All of them. Each and every one of them had witnessed family violence 
as a child and they'd sort out partners who would recreate the dynamics of their childhood. And that's what happens to many of us. We find not what's best for us in our romantic partners. We find what's familiar to us. And it's it's actually preventable. It's actually preventable. If the kids who are getting kicked out of school, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, instead of getting excluded from school for prolonged periods of time and then finding refuge in the streets or gangsters, or whatever, if we looked behind the behavior, then we would, if we society loves saving money, we would save billions of dollars. But more importantly, we would stop these cycles of very real human suffering. But again, no one really seems to be doing that. Don't get me wrong. There are people doing that. Yeah. But they're they're it's, um, it's small scattered and they're always asking for more funding. And, and it's a fucking multifaceted problem, don't get me wrong. But it is solvable if we just came together more. And, and, yeah. and then increasingly, I think people in the social space are fighting for funding. It's limited. Yeah, that takes up most organizations or charities' time yeah. or people who work. It's How like keep the doors open. Exactly. You're, yeah. Fighting over semantics is such a thing these days. It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly frustrating. I'm like, what's the goal? What's the goal? I know, like, I know, I know. Inside. Guys, back, like, you're like, well, how's your relationship with social media changed? It's so much of it is arguing over semantics and like looking at these micro nuanced differences mm. of take and opinion and approach. And in fact, the end goal is the same. You mentioned earlier how I talk with people and try and bring them into the conversation. Most of the people who are my biggest detractors and critics and have attacked me online people whose ideological outcomes I want to see come into reality and indeed spend a significant amount of time trying to progress, like tangibly, not just on the fucking internet. And I don't actually get attacked by black bro dudes that much. I talk about masculinity and constructs and like Chuck talk about all sorts of all the fucking isms and things I've talked about publicly for a long time on public platforms. And I just don't get regular Joes telling me that I'm a faggot or whatever to use that language, Mm. to use the language of homophobia. I get people who I'm like, yo, I'm on your team, homie, like telling Mm. me I'm not doing it. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Tell me how to do it. It's not my job to educate you. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I won't say anything. then. Yeah. Like there are more and more emerging voices Mm. from the American context where these things are far more vociferous. But it is happening here at an increasing pace through the nature of virality of ideas through social media that are similarly frustrated. Like yeah. heterodox thinkers are becoming like, a, yo, it's crazy over here with QAnon. It's crazy over here with the woke cult. Like, how do we have rational discussions for public change? I think that's it. And how do we allow for learning and growth? Is our goal for us all to agree with each other? The nuance seems to be lost or the appetite for nuance. I love Aisha Akami. When Mm. I found her, I felt a weight off my shoulders because I feel quite alone in New Zealand with my thinking, Mm. to be honest with you. And I was going through all this, like, reflection and revelation around politics and the nature of discourse and all these sorts of things and then I saw Aisha and I'm like yo follow send her a message and she followed me back and I'm like yo oh my god you're like a celebrity to me and we had a few chats and then I found all these other amazing voices which have made me a better person they've made me a better person and you know what all those voices aren't like middle class white dudes Chloe Valdery she's like an anti-racist educator right who really rejects the notions of critical race theory And she's got, I think it's called the School of Enchantment. 
And she talks about ending racism and she does workplace training about ending racism with empathy as, I guess, the key tool to uh, ending racism structurally. She does amazing work. Africa Brooke, I don't, yeah, I don't know yeah. if you follow her. I do, Again, I do indeed. Africa is amazing. I like Coleman Hughes, more mm, politically yeah. conservative than me. Mm. But I don't want to just listen to people who think the same as me. But I like I like some of the work of Douglas Murray, gay man. Again, more conservative than I am, but he's got some good points. I think we often like everything's binary and, yes. and we and it's you're all good or you're all bad. It's this absolutism. Mm-hmm. But but he he says some good things. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think that I'm suddenly reactionary and for agreeing with certain things that more conservative commentators might say because mm-hmm. what I feel is that people like yourself and it's actually really nice to talk with you can I just say not just because you're agreeing with me but <laughs> probably a little bit but 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 it's it makes me feel like not alone I feel yeah. like I said I feel alone and probably that's part of my own internal narrative but you can be like I'm getting smashed by New Zealand woke Twitter all the fucking time and lied about and made fun of and all this sort of shit. Mm -hmm. And you're like, huh, well, this kind of sucks. And no one stands up for you because no one wants to get tarnished. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so you find these different voices overseas and you're like, oh. You take a big breath and you're like, fuck, thank gosh. Yeah, thank God. Because I do worry about the world. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't put myself into these positions if I didn't mm. care about other people. Yeah. And, and that's where it ultimately comes down to. And that's why I get frustrated with so- social media is that we all want better. Mm. I think most people who get cancelled are cancelled by people who they broadly agree with. And there's a personal difference and that becomes yeah. like some big political abstraction and then, oh, bad person. Anyway, I'm sure you want to talk about other stuff other than like, <laughs> No, I think that all really, like, to be honest, leans into it really well. I don't think any of these are mutually exclusive pieces because I know that I sent you questions about toxic masculinity and healthy masculinity, and I think that binary conversation is really important in this space because our labelling of people as good and bad is it's laughable to some extent. Like, thinking that we're either a good or a bad person how much hubris and ego is in that? Because most of us... Word, yeah. Who's the fucking arbiter of who's a good yeah. person and a bad person? Yeah, I, And I think that's the thing. Like, I get frustrated. Like, I go to... I've been to prisons. I work with people in youth justice. People who've done the worst things to other people. They're like, literally the worst things you can imagine. Kill people, murder people. I've met men in prison who've raped people. People who are drug dealers who have had methamphetamine addictions. All sorts, like all the worst shit, right? Mm. And if we're looking at that from a restorative justice viewpoint, we need to actually work with those people, help them rehabilitate. These are the criticisms we have of the criminal industrial complex, right? Mm. You know, like we have structural inequalities which drive people to commit crime and offenses and then we put them into the criminal industrial system and then they just are stuck in that system forever because they get released back into the community with more trauma, not less trauma, no resources into the same communities that that help them offend in the first place. Boom, done. That's their life. Who makes money off that? Big companies, right? The state. Mm. But the same people who argue for that, well, that person did a bad thing, bad person. Excommunicate them from the church of social justice. And it's don't you see the binary in that? Do you not see that how like contradictory that is? 
that for tangible offending, we want a restorative, compassionate approach. For ideas of thought, we want a vicious, punitive approach. Yes. That makes no sense. Yeah. There's a lot of hypocrisy out there. I think the beauty of life is that you can hold multiple truths at once. And I think that's what we don't allow for. We go there as like the truth and you have to stick to only that. And you go, as a person, as a human in this world, we hold multiple truths. And I think that's it. I think we have to learn to hold a cognitive dissonance, right? And I think that's what I've enjoyed about getting older is that, because when I was young and graduating with a degree in politics and I was full of like angry hardcore and hip hop songs about difficult issues, I was like, yeah, smash everyone. Mm. And now we just have to live with all of it and help where we can, push with this movement. And we'll only destroy ourselves internally and be bitter, angry, burned out people if we can't get to some degree of acceptance with others. And then with ourselves, and with the inherent contradictions and complications and hypocrisies, as you mentioned, it just comes with being a human being. And I feel mm. social media makes everyone these 2D abstracts. And, and yes. that's to the detriment of all of us. We've got more anxiety, more depression, more self-medication. And social media is part and parcel of that problem. I have gone and given some talks around violence prevention and masculinity in prisons. Mm-hmm. But I work weekly with people. Who are, I have a group of people who come through every week who are on bail. Oh, and they're yeah. on like long-term bail. Mm-hmm. So they come to the gym and they're like, we can't kick with the left leg because we're all in our Rolexes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I love it too. They're like, it's my favorite hour of the week, right? Yeah. They're so funny, man. And so, yeah, so I help them in staying out of jail, essentially, and giving Mm. them positive pathways to emotional catharsis, maintaining good mental health, dealing with anger, because I've found through years and years of being in gym spaces that it can be a Trojan horse for new ideas and new ways of being. And and I actually did a body research, which I talk about whenever I'm doing interviews, because I love advocating for martial arts through UNESCO. And we did this. Uh, I don't know if you can see that. It's called Youth Development Through Martial Arts. Fantastic. From the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. And we did an evaluation framework for like youth Mm. activities. I was doing some research looking for like global models that we could look to replicate. And I found people in like Belfast and Ireland and refugee camps in Egypt and people in the Bronx and like those sorts of places all got positive outcomes, all moved towards UN development goals. Mm. And that's, I'm trying to recreate on a smaller model here. And that's why I'm in the process of, yo, how do I uh, increase the scope of this? So I'm trying to become like a charitable trust and charitable entity. Mm. Look for things like that to to broaden it. Because honestly, fuck, things aren't getting better as we've been talking about. And I know what I do works. And it's not just me. There are lots of good people doing sports programs. I mentioned Dave Letelli. There's the bro who has got the Nine Nine Boxing Academy. He's like a forebearer of what I'm doing. Massive. Mm-hmm. He set himself up real good. He's helped like thousands of young people through boxing. There are a million examples of this sort of stuff. And I just want to like put my own spin on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because there's always going to be new drugs. There's always going to be economic inequality. We still do live in a racist society until we fix all that structural shit. It's on us to help our brothers and sisters. So mm. I kind of, that's what I want to be doing. Until yeah. I'm dead. There's all these people working at places like LifeWise and City Mission and all this sort of shit, and they just don't get recognition. 
And, and I really wish our social media influencers out there, well, yo, donate some money. Every week they put up a post, donate some money to this charity, donate some money to this organization. Mm. Here, here is a list of liquor license applications in this marginalized new community. I need all my followers to oppose them. Here's how you write a, a letter. Here's yeah. this uh, animal cruelty thing. We need you to sign this position. If we send people, if we signposted how to do tangible actions as a community, that would be taking the online power offline. Mm. And unfortunately, I just don't see that happening as much as it could. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. There's a lot of space for that. I think there's so much space for that. Yeah. Because it can happen. Look at, I think my, one of my favorite human beings is Chloe Swarbrick. Mm. Chloe's amazing, huge, awesome person. I met Chloe when she was still a teenager. She did the radio show before me at BFM here in Auckland. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we'd go in and chat, and I, she was always like a genius. I'm like, how are you so smart? And then I used to teach Chloe Muay Thai and kickboxing, and she's busy running the country now, but she's <laughs> someone who uses social media really well to educate, inform, communicate. She's so patient with how she mm. communicates with people, and she's using it to create social change through a call-in approach rather than a call out approach yeah so we're seeing things like the ban of live exports we're seeing the things like the ban of greyhound racing you know like chloe's doing amazing work around those sorts of things harnessing the powerful potential of social media yes. and i wish more people could adopt her model of being constructive mm. Mm. remember in the goal i think that's it like she yeah, has, yo, yo, she's yo, very yo. focused on that goal yeah yeah exactly doesn't get distracted yeah well because we get caught up and be emotional we get emotional and then it's oh we're wild out and i've done that like i said yo i've been a maniac i said yeah. dumbest shit online and that's because it's emotional depressed angry being a human being with and it's ah oh, fuck now it's there forever <laughs> i think that's the problem i think people also take uh, a snapshot of a person's life and use it as mm. representative of who they are and yes we need to be mindful not to do that ourselves yeah, absolutely, because it is very easy to call out other people and say, hey, you're not treating somebody well, and then forgetting how we do it in our everyday life. It's really I know I messaged a, a famous story. person this the other day. She shared an inbox photo of someone who sent her an ignorant racist comment about being Māori. And, like, the person was obviously older, and I sent this person, who's a well-known journalist, and a DM. I was like, hey, that was a really shit thing that person said to you, but maybe just black out their name and their avatar because they're going to get death and rape threats since you shared that. Yes. But I think the polarity that comes from extreme ends of the political discourse and the othering of others and the pushing of people into ideological online spaces where we no longer can communicate to understand but only communicate to win or destroy lead to that. Mm. And the more... And political polarity we have we're going to just keep seeing more physical violence and i worry that's going to happen here when you see QAnon protests in fucking wellington yeah. what? I, I worry about that stuff when we see cell towers being burnt down and what happens online will eventually come offline what starts in america will eventually end up in aotearoa and we need to be m mindful of that and are we part of furthering that problem or are we part of being a circuit breaker to that yeah. problem yeah absolutely and i would love to get more nuance from an expert like you to be honest about toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity because yeah, cool. i actually went to a conversation of yours a few years ago and 
at that conversation you said you no longer use toxic masculinity you went to the man box and now I know Mm. that healthy masculinity is the rhetoric you're using so I'd love to know more about that journey yeah of course okay so ties into what we're talking about Mm. when I when people use the term toxic masculinity they're often weaponizing the terminology and that does nothing to bring regular men into the conversation and they're the people we need to reach when you say toxic masculinity, which is academic jargon for a stereotypical uh, conception of what it, of what healthy and acceptable male behaviors are, most men here being male is bad because most people don't understand the distinction between gender and sex. Those are complicated things to talk about. Obviously, sex is biological and much of gendered behavior if not most, is sociological. So we are acculturated as boys and men from a young age to fit into a limited range of behavior, be aggressive, use violence, seek for domination over women, be sexually promiscuous, be homophobic and anti-feminine, pursuit of power and success, all these sorts of things taught to us from, from a very young age for a range of tropes, media, things our parents say, what we hear in schools. I think schools is a big one, given my stepson's just started going to school Mm. and I'm writing my master's degree about this very slowly and I was just reading a chapter on schooling and masculine constructions so that those boxes become toxic for us if I think I have to be tough all the time and only girls cry and I'm not a girl because being a girl is bad because people told me from a young age don't throw like a girl hard enough eventually I'm going to push all of my emotions down, all of my affect down, and that's going to come out sideways. And we see that all the time. Men are more likely to kill themselves, more likely to kill one another in random violence, more likely to beat up their partners, hurt their children, die in car accidents, and make up over 90% of the prison population. Not just here in Aotearoa, Australia, America, Canada, all of the Western context. I don't really talk about the global South because that's not my area of expertise, but I imagine it's even worse for a whole range of different things. Healthy masculinity actually gives people some hope. When we talk about healthy masculinity, when we talk about stepping outside of the man box, when we help people understand that, yo, you've been taught this stuff. You don't have to be like this. And it's better for you and it's better for your kids and it's better for your missus. People get it into it. When I go and say, yo, who's ever been told hard enough? How did they make you feel when you were little? And I did it, it made me feel like shit. And we have a talk about that. <laughs> Guys start thinking about it. And it's about giving them a range of behaviors or things to just think about to start with, but then lead to action. Who's a dad? Yeah, I'm a dad. How did it feel when your dad yelled at you and punched a hole in the wall? How did that make you feel? Because when I've experienced that, it made me feel like shit and I was scared all the time. And then I became as tough as I could. I covered my body in tattoos, got as muscular as I can. I bought into that. And they're all like, oh, yo, yo. And the extreme end of that is dudes end up in gangs and ultimately project all their insecurity through their their violence and through the constant threat of violence but i know a lot of like chronically tough people and inside they're often the the toughest of them are the most wounded and Mm. and that mask of masculinity is what holds them all together until they end up in jail or they kill someone or whatever true story how do we help men take their masks off and that is through giving them a range of options yo you don't have to be tough all the time you don't have to be right all the time It's about understanding your partner, not communicating to win. Did it feel bad when your dad yelled at your mum? How did that make Mm. you feel when you're a little boy? Touching that little kid inside them that's real scared. 
because I have a little kid inside me that's really scared. It sucks. It's, I had the police come into my house and stuff. That shit sucks. Mm. And, and when I can make other men feel like that, that's a call to arms and a buy into the conversation. And, and, and they get it. Mm. And they're like, yo. And the problem is that I'm a keynote speaker. I don't run workshops. I don't run ongoing programs. And I'm often opening people up to new ideas. Yeah. And what I really want is to help steer them towards ongoing programs. There's some out there. Haybro offers some like online phone services. The Big Uso Victimity runs Safe Man, Safe Family, which is a network of volunteers around the country with the mm. bros like Phil Paikia and Jeremy Iparaima and others. But that's a ridiculous fucking volunteer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So how do you help? mainstream that chat as they're not places that boys and men can go into to get some kind of narratives around conceptions of masculinity but in language which is not jargony mm. how yeah. do you help men understand that all well and good to be tough as on the league field but then we turn it off when we get off the league field and that we play with our kids and that we do the dishes and we don't always get to say what's for dinner and what's going to be on the tv and that we don't raise our voices. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because as much as I was, I've been, I've never been physically violent to a partner or controlling in a coercive manner. I've raised my voice and yelled mm. at people I've loved and called them names and put them down, recreating. This is when I was younger, yeah. in, in my 20s and stuff, mm. before I went, did a lot of work on myself, recreating elements of what I grew up witnessing. And, and yeah, I'm grateful that I never hit anyone or told them what they could wear or check their messages or made them feel scared in that regard. Mm. But I do regret having called people I care about names or putting them down. Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I've had access to psychotherapy and psychology and fucking a million and one books and, and networks that help me grow and heal and mm. take ownership of that and know how to navigate conflict emotionally, nonviolently. And unfortunately, many people don't. So mm. how, how do we mainstream that? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what we're talking about when we talk about healthy masculinity. All people argue, not all people make their partners w w walk on eggshells. Yeah. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, in, yeah, in their... absolutely. There's the spectrum there, right? And it can be there hard to know that, that line. I was reading, fuck, it's such a great book by Jess Hill. It's called See What You Made Me Do or Look What You uh -huh. Made Me Do. And it's on, it's like, she just interviewed me, like you're interviewing me the other day. She's an Australian author amazing book on gen gendered violence prevention and she looks particularly at coercive control and how systematically we do a really poor job of mm. protecting people from coercive control and ipv and ipv homicide and because i've always wondered that right what's abuse and what's a normal relationship mm -hmm. do you know what i mean yeah and i've put myself through a microscope <laughs> given my public work and i'm like oh okay cool i've been a bad arguer Mm. And, I, and I take ownership of that, but I don't. But I think it's important to put ourselves through that like process. And, mm. and if you're going to be out there, you have to put yourself first and foremost through processes of accountability and talk to former partners, maybe, or talk to therapists yeah. And, and, and yeah, in order to better reach people. There's no point in me going to reach a group of men and say, I've had a flawless life. Yeah. I've never yelled with anyone. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're not going to be see relatable. That's it. And, and, and I'm not just going to be honest. And you'd be lying. Like, yeah. Conversation is one, of the, is one of the best things we can do to create mm. social change, not filtered conversation. Yeah. And I think I'm thinking about it as I talk to you. 
and you're like, how do you change how you are online now? I'm like, not everything needs to be said online. Yeah. And I think about youth for me did get an ego kick from, I feel like I'm still youthful, physically mm. younger me. Did get an ego kick from saying the right thing online, no matter what. Whereas now I'm like, mm, I don't need kudos to this. I'd rather just have an honest chat with five guys in a room. So that's what's changing. Focusing on that real authentic connection. Hard out. And then trying to help other men do what I'm doing. Yeah. Not just me, but like, how do you pass the torch? Mm -hmm. How do you get like all the brothers talking about what we're talking about? And And I think that's happening. There are online voices I'm seeing like Zane from For All The Brothers and other organizations that have emerged organically online and now they're doing offline stuff. They're creating... Mm. My father's barber, she's not your rehab. That all started yeah. as an online movement, but they move it offline because that's mm. the real change happens. And they have men's meetups and weekly walks and shit like that. And fucking things are getting better. Like men opening up and sharing, that's healthy masculinity. And not sharing of heaps of drugs and alcohol and locker room banter, mm. but about real shit. And I guess it is cause for optimism. And when you talk about people opening up and having these conversations one thing I was interested in is if you're a guy and you're not there yet things are changing and you've been called out for behavior and it feels really uncomfortable you went through a big journey in your younger years which is amazing but like how did you start there because like you said there's not exactly a lot of places where men can go to figure this shit out what are some tips and tools that men can (laughs) incorporate in order to be on this journey i guess it's a lived experience one so it's Mm. not please don't take this as like a universal answer (laughs) yeah i'll tell you a story and hopefully it'll make sense i went to see my bro andy down at crossfit uh in newmarket here in auckland and he said bro i used to look at the stuff you'd put up online about like sexual harassment and sexual violence and i was like "Mm, i don't know if that's it bro but then one of the girls come to the gym and she was really upset because some dudes had like yelled some gross shit at her. And he was like, oh. And then he asked all the women in his gym, I think, this is how the story goes, how often they got harassed going for a run or whatever when they're training because he's mm. a trainer. And they all said, me, all of them, 30, 40 women. And he was like, and I just want to reflect what you've been saying really makes sense now. And I just didn't know that. Mm. And so for me... I'm emotionally and subconsciously primed to have an empathy for, I guess, the female experience. I don't want to sound like a wanker, but my mum was abused and it sucks. <laughs> like, like she's a mad, optimistic person. And it's a weird one. I'm telling other people's stories, but I've asked both my parents for permission to talk about this stuff. And they've both been relatively cool with it. Mum's always like, well, I didn't get beat up every weekend. It wasn't once warriors. I got hit maybe once or twice over Mm. 20 years. But like my dad was physically abusive a couple of times, emotionally abusive all the time. And so I'm sensitized to that. Mm. And then I listened to really politicized music. And I used to listen to songs about sexism being fucking whack. (laughs) And then I started like boycotting shit. Like the 90s, late 2000s, New York hardcore scene and metalcore scene was about fucking veganism and animal Mm. rights and like, capitalism sucked and I listened to like Rage Against the Machine and they sang about all manner of political issues and bands like Anti-Flag and Downset and all these fucking bands that you probably never heard of. Earth Crisis was a big one and I was like yo and I was always fucking angry man like I was a fucking angry kid and I was like 
listen to metal and shit like Slayer and all this. And I was like, oh, here's some music that's about stuff. Listen to Public Enemy and that. And I was like, oh, this is something to be angry at. This makes sense mm. to me. And I started, I've been a vegetarian for 20 something years. For a long time, I don't anymore. I boycott like different brands like Nike and shit. Nike are kind of better now, vaguely. Like I can't, I guess I'd sold out on that one. But, you know, books like No Logo were around. Naomi Klein was talking about like methods of like production and consumption and mm. trade organization and protests in Seattle, all these things that were happening at the turn of the century. It was a very politicized time for me. I went to Mexico in 2004 and encountered proper poverty, went back to university, and I started reflecting on my consumption of pornography. Mm. And which is like back then it was conservative to be in reaction and to be anti-porn. There were films like The People versus Larry Flint and it was like a censorship and rights issue and a sexual liberation issue. But I started reading radical feminist literature, to be honest mm. with you. Yeah. I started reading uh Robert Jensen and Andrew Dworkin and Pamela Stevenson. Pamela Stevenson, I think, is the name of an author that I used to read. Ariel Levy, like I started reading a website called oneangrygirl.net and reading all these different articles. Like I said, this before social media was big and it was message mm. boards. And it really made me think about what I was consuming. And it made me think about objectification. It made me think about the shit my friends said and my friends like beeping the hornet girls and just fucking, I was like, this is wrong. This is wrong. And it's just been a process of learning and unlearning. But it came from an empathy and then listening to my, I've always had lots of female friends. I've yeah. always enjoyed like the platonic company of girls and women, not because mm. I'm creepy, but I just get on with girls real good. Mm -hmm. I guess like I'm an emotional dude and you can talk about shit with, I found case study of one yeah. um, that you can talk about different things with girls and you can talk about with some boys. Mm -hmm. That's a socialization thing. Yeah. I don't know. But as a teenager, I had heaps of female friends. And when you hear their experiences firsthand and it, it made me want to fucking make things different. And, and that's still what underpins the professional work I do and the public advocacy I do because fucking heaps of my friends have been raped yeah, or have been abused or fuck any number of things. And so I went and got educated about it as much as I could and I continue to do. And when the government got in touch with me and asked me to start doing work, I think back in 2013 around gendered violence prevention, I fucking jumped at the chance. And, and and don't get me wrong, it's changed a lot since I started doing this work, as we've been talking about. And I've at times questioned, is it like what I want to do anymore? Mm. Because I'm older now. And when you hit 40 in our culture, particularly online culture, you're middle age, right? You're a middle aged mm. white guy. I'm actually mixed race and have a whole mixed race history mm -hmm. that yeah has shocked in my life in some regards but I'm white passing and I acknowledge that all the privilege mm -hmm. that comes with that but your voice doesn't get heard the same anymore or for some people as it did maybe 10 years ago mm -hmm. which isn't a long time but it's changed and I'm like do I, is this me do I need to yeah. do this but the fact is that I've spent so long educating myself and getting educated and listening to women that I feel that I have a duty to do it as long as it's effective. Mm. And so I guess to finish, Love I it. feel like as long as I can do it and bring boys and men into the fold, which is I feel the best lane to be in for someone mm. in my position, then I will. 
and then, and how do I create legacy and how do I build an organization or work with organizations to bring boys and men into the fold of creating a gender equitable outcome society because mm. like we've been talking about today Alicia things haven't changed on the ground despite the online conversations that we're having yeah and it's generational and I and I want things to get better I don't want you to be scared to go for a run at night I don't want my stepson's friends when he's a young man to get raped mm. at a party because mm. they because some guy took advantage of them I don't want boys and men to get their education through online pornography, which is actually a lot of sexual abuse that's mm. been made cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like mainstream porn sites, a stepmother, stepsister. I was told if I didn't do this, blah, 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 all these stories of coercion and intrafamilial ancestral themes. That's how we come to sexuality these days. There's this yeah. linking of sexiness and aggression. And then we wonder why Rosebusters happens. We socialize mm-hmm. these boys to become sexual predators. Is it any wonder? Those yeah. boys need to be accountable for what they've done through the criminal justice system. But if we want to turn the tap off, we need to put policy in place to protect people from things like pornography and the education it teaches us. That's why I do what I do. Mm, that is so wonderful. And it just highlights the responsibility we all have to build a society where that's a reality, we can actually work to deconstruct that. Because if we're going to hold people like Rosebusters accountable, as should be, society is also accountable to the fact that we create that. We make, make monsters. That a norm. Yeah, we yeah. make it a norm. Do we make monsters? Maybe we don't make monsters. We make young men who are primed to be violent and sexually aggressive, and then mm. we wring our hands and wonder why. This is <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We, we made the recipe and then we wonder. That's like, it, oh, man. Shit. That's it. That's, that's it. I am so grateful for you just in terms of what you're doing out there. It's amazing. And I'm really grateful for you coming on and talking to me. I just appreciate it a lot. And the candid conversation, I just fucking love it. You're welcome. Hopefully I don't get re-cancelled. And I really appreciate your interest. I'm always very humbled when people want to talk with me. And, you know, I do want to acknowledge that I'm just one person and there are he- heaps of wonderful people in, in these spaces, uh, men, women, gender non-conforming and otherwise who are, who are doing these things, and I'm just happy to be p- p- part of that. So thanks for having me on your show. I really enjoyed listening back to my conversation with Richie. It's so thought-provoking, and it highlights to me how keeping the goal in mind is key. Who are we trying to serve? Because often it can be easy to get off track to do things that stroke our ego. I understand that not everybody's going to agree with things that we discussed in this episode. And I think that's the point. We're all entitled to have our own opinions and to have candid and open discussions about why we might have these differences. Being able to share our thoughts and our beliefs is really important as long as it is healthy and safe and isn't calling into question somebody else's humanity and right to live. We've all got something to learn from each other and I absolutely learned from my conversation with Richie. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Please DM me on Instagram. I will link that once again in the show notes and you can also follow Richie online. His Facebook and his Instagram is Richie Hardcore. I really recommend following him. He's an incredibly knowledgeable and intellectual person who talks to a range of interesting people and shares those discussions and insights. Have an incredible week everyone and I can't wait to chat to you soon.